This is Mercy Harper, writer for research services at APQC. And this is Lauren Trees, principal research lead for knowledge management at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're here with Andy Fitzgerald, an information and content strategy consultant, to talk about knowledge graphs. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thank you. Good to be here. So a lot of our listeners are very interested in knowledge graphs, but only a few have actually built them. For the most part, the folks we know aren't quite sure where to start with this. And to be honest, many aren't really sure what it is, but they know they want it. And so when I read Andy's posts about starting small with knowledge graphs, I thought he'd be the perfect person to kind of break this stuff down for our listeners in a more practical, tactical, and approachable way. So I think uh, let's start with the basics. Andy, can you give us your best for dummies explanation of knowledge graphs? I'll try. So a knowledge graph is... A, an approach that integrates data and knowledge at scale. It does this to create machine-readable facts from one or more data sources in order to make that data legible and actionable in order to achieve business or organization goals. And those goals might be things like personalization, recommendation systems, omnichannel publishing, advanced analytics, and the, the list goes on. And I think that that's a, a good overview. I think for a lot of our knowledge management audience, they're trying to figure out not just what the technology layer is around knowledge graphs, but how an end user would experience it, how mm. it would change how people react to data and content and, and information inside the organization or just how they interact with it. Mm -hmm. Sure. So from the end user point of view, there are lots of good examples that, that pop up. So for instance, yesterday, uh, my wife, Anna, was reading a story uh, on a major national news publication website about uh, hailstorms in France. Uh, they evidently had uh, a hailstorm that had hail balls or hail the size of golf balls that was raining down and destroying these vineyards, which of course, very sad for all of us. And she saw in a link this uh, hailstones the size of golf balls, and the golf ball was, was underlined. So, of course, she wanted to see a picture of what a, what a hailstone the size of a golf ball was. She clicked on that link, and it took her to an index page that had all of that publication stories on golf. <laughs> not, at, not at all what she wanted, not at all what she understood from context, but this is a case where, uh, so in my, my definition, um, that idea of uh, making machine-readable facts from one or more sources so that they're legible and actionable. And this was a case where this publication, who I'm not going to name, uh, had identified that golf balls is an entity in the domain of knowledge that they care about. And they had a system that went through and found that entity, but then it didn't understand what it was in the context of the article, and it linked it to something completely irrelevant. Uh, and uh, it was kind of humorous, but certainly not the kind of experience that uh, this organization had invested um, in. The data was there uh, and they were doing the linking, but there wasn't a knowledge model that was able to make sense of how that data fit together in the context of the subject at hand. 
So those kinds of instances, that one was, was particularly recent and particularly humorous, but then you see other cases where data is just out of context. So for example, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this on Amazon, a couple of years ago, I bought a new office chair. And then for months, all I saw was ads for office chairs because now I'm an office chair collector. Uh, but these aren't how we experience and how we live in the world, yet we have these kinds of interactions with technology all the time. And I'm sure you and everybody who's listening can think like, oh yeah, this happened and it was ridiculous. Um, but those are cases where um, data is being used and employed at scale, but without a knowledge model that allows the algorithms that are putting those pieces together to make sense of it. Uh, so that's the missing piece. And this is, if, if we want to talk about what advantages you would get from knowledge graphs, it's not looking idiotic in front of your customers by doing this kind of stuff. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. Yes. I, of course, encounter these instances all the time. And so you can see why a lot of our listeners want this technology as a way to kind of make computers be as smart as we really want and in many instances need them to be. So I kind of wanted to ask you about what do you actually really need to get started? And that question for a lot of folks begins with the question of, can I just buy this thing or do I need to build it? So what do you see as the advantages of building versus buying when it comes to knowledge graphs? In this case, it's almost never a, an or question. There's always going to be a little bit of both. Uh, and I say that uh, because there's nothing that an organization like this news organization can buy off the shelf that will have a perfect representation of, of their knowledge model. So some people who are uh, looking into this space may be familiar with schema.org. Schema.org is the knowledge model that is now supported by Google that produces and makes available a vocabulary that individual organizations can use to mark up content on their sites. So for instance, if I'm a restaurant, I can mark up the opening and closing hours of my restaurant with uh, the hours type from schema.org so that an, an algorithm reading through that content can say, um, okay, these are your opening and closing hours. So I know that when I have a search result page and someone says uh, Andy's Pizzeria, I can display that confidently on the search results page. Something like schema.org is a general purpose. It's very generic. And a lot of organizations have a hard time once they get past that generic level of, okay, these are our hours, this is our menu, this is our list of products, doing, they have a hard time doing anything that differentiates them from everyone else. Mm -hmm. And this is where it's almost always going to be a build question because the, the way that one is able to describe the things that make one's organization unique in a competitive marketplace is by understanding the domain and being able to model that in a way that reflects what you think your market advantage is or what you think that your users are after. So that's the, the whether it's, even if you, you buy something off the shelf, unless you are a, a completely generic Acme widget company, which no one is, nothing's ever gonna fit quite exactly what you're doing. So there's always gonna be some building involved uh, and then the, on the, the buy side of things, so on the technology side of things, there is an incredible spectrum of products out there from uh, the open source Apache Jenna, Fuseki um, graph server that you can 
download if you're a big nerd and run on your old MacBook Pro uh, and you can load all the graphs, all the, the graph data in there yourself and query it and make your endpoint available to things like uh, one that I've played with and like is data.world, which is a, um, a software as a service vendor and they make it easy for you to load data into their system. And they basically make uh, the connections between your data and your knowledge model and then allow you to query that through an API that they make available. Uh, and they have, um, they're actually I, one that I recommend getting started with because they uh, have a number of tutorials. It's pretty easy to start with and they have a pretty good free tier so you can take it for a test run. Uh, and then there are enterprise tools, or there's, there's lots of them and they, they can actually get really expensive really quickly um, because they have um, pretty powerful features and functionality associated with them. Uh, but unfortunately, there's not a really good um, sort of A-B spectrum on the buy versus build. Mm. Uh, one thing on that uh, is actually um, a recommendation from a friend of mine, Aaron Bradley, who's um, an ontologist at Electronic Arts. Uh, one of his recommendations is hire people who know the space, uh, ontologists and knowledge managers and people who are familiar with the technology, because otherwise you can spend a lot of time circling the subject and never actually get anything that points back to business goals. I think that that speaks to the next question we wanted to ask was around the, the skill sets that you need. And, and then I also just wanted to ask some real practical questions, speaking into this idea of a knowledge model, how you get there, what mm. you need in your data to get that, and, and what the steps are to, to build that and, and get to the point where you have your data and your knowledge model, and you can go feed that into a system. Well, let's start there. So uh, the... The knowledge model is a machine-readable representation of your subject domain, whatever that may be. Uh, and one of the examples I like to give is if you are a, uh, a pet store, uh, you may have a knowledge model for your products. So you know that if a customer uh, is looking for something like a kidney diet cat food, right? Uh, you, your knowledge model can help you infer that they probably have a geriatric cat because that's the, the common case. And that um, you may also be able to put together and make a recommendation, hey, we know the geriatric cats like heated pet beds, right? So that you can make that kind of recommendation or uh, joint supplements, for instance. I also have a geriatric cat, so I'm really familiar with this domain. Uh, so that would be a knowledge model and the kinds of connections that you want to make based on your domain. Now, if you are a veterinary clinic, you may also have a knowledge model about companion animals, but it would probably be a little bit different. So in that case, um, if you have uh, information about geriatric cats and kidney failure, you might also have things like um, other tests and checkups uh, that should be recommended if they're not done already. Other kinds of problems that cats who are older tend to run into, that someone who is, um, running a, a pet supply store wouldn't necessarily need or want. Uh, it, it wouldn't serve their purposes. So those knowledge models, again, this is that build piece. Uh, and there are some cases, uh, and I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit, in healthcare in particular, there are some very well-developed knowledge models that are out there and are free to use. So one of them is SNOMED CT for clinical terms. Uh, and I'm using this with a client right now where there's a, a vast vocabulary of different clinical practices 
uh, that is presented in a hierarchy or a polyhierarchy actually um, that helps can help a, a machine reason how those pieces fit together. Uh, in, in healthcare, and this is actually um, licensed and made available by the National Institute of Health, uh, because of course there is a common interest in all of us in having a common vocabulary for how we talk about clinical care. But outside of um, a couple isolated domains, most of those knowledge models are things that, that one would want to build or would need to build at, at least to some degree on their own. So the, that's the conceptual side of the knowledge model. The technical side of the knowledge model is how do you then represent that in a way that a machine can use that is legible and actionable for an algorithm? And um, there are some standards for this. One of the, the standards that it is actually a fairly simple standard, but I've seen in a lot of the knowledge uh, management and uh, knowledge graph tools that are out there that is most often used is called SCOS. It stands for Simple um, Knowledge Organization System. It's a worldwide web consortium recommendation. Uh, the, the recommendation is completely open, free to use. It's not, it's, it's like HTTP, it's, it's just, it's out there. Um, uh, and SCOS is uh, a way for building taxonomies, uh, thesauri and controlled vocabulary lists uh, in uh, a machine readable format. So this all happens in um, RDF, which is a resource description framework, uh, but it's a fairly, um, low barrier way to get started building a knowledge model. So after SCOS, a, the, the next uh, most expressive, and it's really in order of, at least in order of magnitude, more expressive than SCOS is OWL, and OWL is the web ontology language. And OWL allows for modeling of essentially arbitrarily complex knowledge models. And uh, although it's tempting to think, oh, well, we need an ontology, we need to start with OWL. Uh, when you look at a lot of the uh, software that's out there. So Pool Party is the one that I'm the most familiar with. is knowledge modeling software. They primarily use SCOS uh, for managing the knowledge model. And it, it turns out that SCOS can be very expressive uh, when it's structured correctly. So uh, that would be where I would, I would say on the technical side, where you would start with making that knowledge model that's specific to your organization machine readable. And then, of course, connecting that with the data is the other piece. And the uh, remember, our, our uh, knowledge graph is about making machine-readable facts from one or more sources of data. So uh, the data itself uh, needs to be uh, tagged. So to go back to uh, my example of Andy's Pizzeria, which evidently I run now, uh, my opening hours, um, I need to be able to isolate that bit of content that says I'm open from 830 because we make breakfast pizza, I guess, uh, until you know midnight. Uh, and to be able to tag that piece of content as these are my opening and these are my closing hours. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that I've seen people run into with this is they have all of this data and it's largely unstructured, it's largely not tagged. Uh, and that process can be onerous to, to start to structure and tag that data. There are tools, and I'm sure if you've looked into this space at all, you've, you have certainly heard wild promises around artificial intelligence. Oh yeah, we'll just throw the AI at it and it'll make sense of all of it. Oh, it costs you a million dollars, but then you'll have X, Y, Z. Uh, well, let's go back to our, our golf ball example. Uh, AI, and, and really AI is, um, this is gonna sound a little bit cynical, but, but AI is what 
usually what's referred to some other technology that's harder to explain. So we just call it AI. AI is, is always something else under the covers. Most of what this is, is natural language processing. And natural language processing, there are some uh, powerful tools and techniques for what is essentially entity extraction. So going through, uh, if we're talking about linear text, a linear document and saying, okay, I have a list of these entities that I know are in my domain model and they know are important for my organization, say golf balls, uh, and find looking through a document and saying, aha, here's an entity, this is a golf ball. Uh, so it's possible to use natural language processing to extract those entities from what is otherwise unstructured text, but it's very rarely successful as a fully automated process. See my earlier example about hail. So usually the, that kind of processing can take a first pass at a set of documents and provide some recommendations, but there's almost always at least a spot check. There needs to be a set of human eyes on it because language as it turns out is wildly complex, especially when we're talking about narrative language. Uh, and it, it's, it's still difficult for machines to pick out um, the individual instances of meaning and put them in context. It's really interesting. I wanted to ask you what the role of subject matter experts is in this process. Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of what you're saying is you need an ontologist and a knowledge graph specialist to put all of this together, but maybe the role for a subject matter expert is in helping you prepare that data to fit into this, this knowledge model and system. Exactly. It's helping to prepare the data. And there, I've, I've left off machine learning a little bit. That's an area that I'm less familiar with, but people who are more familiar with it, uh, I think can help out in that uh, and help make a case for where you might use a subject matter expert to help train a model so that it can more effectively distinguish golf balls from hailstones. Uh, the other place where the subject matter experts are important is also in putting that knowledge model together to begin with. So someone who is familiar with OWL, who's familiar with SCOS or uh, modeling ontologies in general, uh, should have, better have, a, a thorough knowledge of the technical aspects of the space, but they may not know veterinary medicine, or they may not know pet stores, or they may not know what it is that's unique about a particular domain, and they need the, they will need, and, and really will seek out uh, the subject matter experts input on that uh, to make sure that what they're modeling is both correctly modeled and the correct model. So I want to turn to um, starting small and that it's possible to, to do that and still get some value with what you call uh, boutique knowledge graphs. Um, so could you just walk us through an example of a boutique knowledge graph, how long it actually took to build that and um, the value that folks got out of it? Sure. So the uh, example that I have for a boutique knowledge graph uh, was one that I built as a, uh, a test case, mostly so that I could talk about it and I could share the code with everyone and I could share the project with everyone so that it's not behind client confidentiality. And it's called UX methods. The idea of UX methods is to provide a resource for user experience designers, which is how I started my design career, information career, I guess, uh, to uh, provide people who are learning about these methods insight into what the different methods of user experience design are, but more importantly, how they fit together. So this idea comes from 
teaching information architecture at a school here in Seattle called um, um, the School of Digital Concepts and um, finding that students could pretty easily understand and execute a technique called a card sort. The card sort is where you give test participants a set of 50 cards, virtual real cards, and you have them sort them into categories so that you can understand their mental model of what a particular subject area category set is for them. So students understood the card chart perfectly well, but where they consistently had problems is, okay, well, what do I need in order to do a card sort? What do I need to have done before I do the card sort? And then once I get the card sort done, what do I do with that? How does that fit into how I create navigation or how I create wireframes or uh, how I might put together um, a high level information architecture approach? And that connective tissue between the pieces was consistently difficult. So what UX methods does is it catalogs the different methods that are, that make up the practices of user experience design, but it also catalogs and describes the connective tissue between the methods. Now, there are a couple of ways that this could have happened. One would be when I create an entry or another subject matter expert creates an entry for card source, card sort, we say, okay, well, what are all the things that need to go into a card chart? Well, you need to have done some uh, user research so you know who your, your users are. You need to have done some uh, content research so you know what kind of content that you, you have. And you want to know, you should know what your business goals are. It's possible to list those, but the idea is that you should be able to link to those other methods to be able to trace the path, path through. And what that means is if I start off and I have uh, content analysis and um, user archetypes as methods, and then I add card sorting, and then I add a half dozen other things, when I go back and add determining business goals, you now I have to go through and link all of those pieces manually and make sure that everything's connected. And I've helped clients build enough systems to know when that there, that, to know that when there are manual links, they always get stale. Uh, because keeping them up to date is a lot of work. Now, something like UX methods, it's possible to do. Right now, I think there are maybe 30 resources on there. But when you're working with a client that has hundreds or thousands of resources and they're updating those links, links manually, either they never get put in or they always get out of date uh, because it, it's just a gargantuan amount of work. Um, so the, the idea of the knowledge model behind UX methods is Instead of describing what the inputs and the next steps for a method are, instead describe what it produces and what it consumes. So a card sort in order to run needs insight about users. It also needs uh, insight about content. So that's describing the card sort itself. Uh, a user, uh, user interviews, create insight about users. Persona creation creates insight about users. So that's an output of that. So in this case, um, what UX methods does is it takes the knowledge or it takes the data about what a method's inputs and outputs are. So the description of the method itself uh, across all the methods, it dumps them into a graph database. And then there's a knowledge model that sits on top of that. Uh, and it's a very simple, uh, it's actually only two axioms in this ontology. So it's a very simple ontology, but that basically calculates and weighs uh, the inputs from one method 
that are the outputs of another method, and then it ranks those. So that every time a new method is added, the inputs and the outputs, say from card sorting, are recalculated and they're re-ranked. So they're ordered by the methods that share the most outputs or the most inputs. Now, in this example, what it means as a content creator is that adding new content, it's really easy because all I have to do is describe the thing that I'm working on right now and then everything else, the rest of the system updates. Again, in this very simple example, uh, it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, one for a while may be able to do manually, uh, but, but the idea is that if this, as this scales from, uh, you know, a score of resources to 100, or you know thousands, because there are some sites like the Interaction Design Foundation that has just hundreds and hundreds of different methods that are associated with it. Um, that that system and the the goal of the system again isn't to be a catalog; it's to describe the interconnections between pieces. That that goal can be maintained. So that's the 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 overview of the system. Uh, and in terms of putting it together. Uh, this is one that's built uh, with a headless content management system that uses Sanity IO to manage the content. And then this is using data.world. And connecting uh, those two pieces together, once the data was modeled with those goals in mind was fairly simple. It, it did mean, particularly in setting up uh, data.world, uh, if I didn't have a working knowledge of SCOS or OWL or how RDF works or how Sparkle queries work, um, I would not have been able would not have been able to do it. So this is a case where um, making sure that in conceiving so that you have a sense of what's possible and, and then an instrument in these pieces, uh, it find the people that. That, that are familiar with the technologies. Uh, it'll, it'll save you a, a lot of time. Andy, you mentioned working with customers who have hundreds of thousands of data sources. I, I think the example you're describing makes sense. And if you're starting and building organically a knowledge base, then this sounds like you can get your head around it. Mm -hmm. But for organizations that have decades of unstructured, messy content that they're trying to put into this kind of model. What do you tell folks in that position and, and how do they get started with this in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming or impossible? It's a great question. I tell people to start small and starting, it, it sounds trite and it sounds easy, but in the world of knowledge graphs, and in the world of resource description frameworks and graph technology, starting small has a whole different set of assumptions than it does in the relational database world. So in a relational database model, your schema and your data are separate. So the data and the way that it's organized are two different things. You put your schema together beforehand, and then you don't mess with it. Because if you change your schema, then you're changing the whole relational database. Usually what happens is you add another database uh, if you need to change something that reflects that change and you do a bunch of joins and then things get super complicated over time. And that's how you end up with these big messes. With graph uh, technology, with RDF in particular, there is there are, there are a couple of assumptions that are different. Uh, one of these is called the open world assumption. In the relational database world, uh, you either have a response to a query 
or the response is false. It's not there. Um, so the answer is yes or no if you're querying data. In the graph world, uh, you can have an answer of, of, I know that the answer is yes, I know that the answer is no, or I don't know. So it's called the open world assumption. And that the, what RDF assumes is that there is always data out there that you don't know about. So in order to accommodate this open world assumption, instead of the data model and the data being separate, they are actually combined in the same graph. So the knowledge model and the data that it represents sit in the same graph and are queried at the same time. And to extend that knowledge model uh, is built into the system. So it would be like having a relational database um, where the schema is meant to change over time, which doesn't work with relational databases, it breaks them. Um, but RDF is meant to change and evolve over time. So as you add new data, you, uh, you're not multiplying tables and accumulating this technology debt that, that is eventually going to crush you because it's not built to scale. You're actually working with something that is built to scale and change over time. And there are some of the, just as an example, some of the ways that the web ontology language um, accommodates this is uh, through um, uh, entity reconciliation. So there's uh, uh, an axiom called owl same as. So if Andy's Pizzeria and Andy's Pizza Emporium are actually the same place, uh, and I have them in two different data sets, I can create uh, um, a statement that says, uh, Andy's Pizza Emporium and Andy's Pizzeria, owl same as, and data are treated as the same thing. Um, so uh, that's one way that data across different data sets, it's just a simple example of how data across data sets can be combined and how RDF technologies are designed to do that. So with the start small, it means that if you've got a gazillion relational databases, pick one that has an impact uh, and start to move that over to a graph system. And this can be actually physically moving the data or what's called virtualizing the data. And um, virtualizing the data would be, okay, well, the data stays in the graph, or it stays in the relational database, but we're going to uh, essentially create a copy of it in uh, the graph database and um, say, update that every day or every week or whatever else to make sure that they stay in sync. And there, there are, this is called um, extract, transform, and load uh, the ETL process. And there are um, lots of different ways to achieve this. Uh, but it essentially would be a way of virtualizing that data so that then you can um, start to use it in a more structured way. And then you can virtualize data from another system and start to build that over time. And what I tell people is um, to address the business needs from the start. So if you have uh, analytics data from two different sources that right now um, some poor soul is putting together in a spreadsheet every week and shipping out as a PDF to 18 executives, can you bring those things together into a single dashboard uh, that could be uh, updated automatically and really live in real time? That would be a way to start small uh, and then start to bring in other pieces of data. But it's something that if you can um, free up a person's time or have better analytics, that might that should be something that would have a business impact. Just like with UX methods, the goal, although UX methods is no for-profit company, it's not, there's not a, a bottom line there. But the business goal was to make the connective tissue between the methods 
something that could be maintained and scaled over time. So there was a, a small focused goal uh, uh, and reason for, for creating a, a graph model of these things. Uh, and in, the, in this business example, maybe it's um, reporting or maybe it's uh, around building uh, personalization or recommendations um, from some discrete data sets. And then because of that open world assumption, uh, adding in additional data sets as you grow is something that can happen um, gradually. The other piece about starting small that I'll point out is that uh, even in the, the high-end enterprise tool, so pool party is another one that comes to mind, the underlying technology is the resource description framework schema and the underlying data model is SCOS. Both of those are um, W3C recommendations. They are uh, open source public recommendations. Uh, so if you're starting with a data.world or you're starting with a Jenny Posecki server running on someone's old MacBook Pro and you're using RDF and SCOS, as you outgrow that system, or as you decide that uh, you need something that is off-premises and uh, you want to use a, a cloud service, or you want to, you're on AWS, you move everything over to AWS Neptune. Because you have started with standards, uh, moving from one system to another, because even the enterprise systems use standards, uh, is feasible. So you can start small, even from the point of view of a vendor, um, and as, as long as that vendor isn't doing weird things with the standards in order to lock you in, uh, then being able to move and scale that is another way that starting small is feasible uh, and then allowing that, that standards-based system to grow according to your needs um, is uh, it, usually not only a possible option, but usually the better option as well. Uh, there's a, an axiom that I, that a little truism I love from uh, John Gall called Gall's Law that is uh, a complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a smaller system that works. So you start small and create something that works, and then you can get something bigger that works. But if you try and create something big and gnarly that works, uh, you're, you're probably going to run into problems because you haven't gotten the small systems working yet. Absolutely. I think that is true in uh, many, many instances. <laughs> I think so too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Andy. My pleasure. It's great talking with you. So um, if folks want to learn more about Andy and his work, they can visit andyfitzgeraldconsulting.com and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Once again, I'm Mercy Harper. And I'm Lauren Trees. Thanks for joining us for this APQC podcast. Please go to apqc.org to learn more about our research and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Mm -hmm.